0: The following is an exclusive presentation of 680 WPTF
1: and Applied Vision Works. This is the Building a Leadership Culture podcast, hosted by President of Applied Vision Works, Don Hadley. This is Don Hadley of Applied Vision Works. We're doing the podcast Building a Leadership Culture. I've been speaking with Lena Mayer which was part one, we discussed leadership and how to put life back into the softball team that she was on, not just on the field, but also behind the scenes where they knew their purpose and why they were doing what they're doing. The second part of it is really transitioning into the recruiting and retaining of people in their 20s and 30s. What is it that we as employers need to say and do that can make a difference to create a partnership, a dialogue if you with, younger people and do it in a way that's fun and exciting for them and gives all of us an opportunity to be able to work together for a long, long period of time. So we're interested. And Lena, glad to have you back here again. How are you doing?
2: Pretty good. Pretty good.
1: So anything else you would share about the incident? What happened? Anything else related that we've talked about to that that you th- find interesting, unique, or question or anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Like if you're giving advice to somebody, I don't care if it's business or softball or talking with one of their kids in the family, what 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 would you want them to learn or best advice?
2: Uh. You
1: don't know...
2: I don't know. I'm 23. I don't have all the answers.
1: But you probably have more than you realize. I wish at 23 I had more confidence. And I still should have questioned at 23 as much as I did. Mm-hmm. But I should have had more confidence that some of my thoughts were right. But mm-hmm. then asked the questions to confirm them and had more confidence that it doesn't matter if you're 23 or 53. Because my opinion mm-hmm. is it does not matter. You know, me at 55, you know, I've got a lot of a lot of screwed up things in me. And a lot of the screwed up things in me may actually can get fixed by perceptions or perspectives you have. Now there may be some things I've got that can be valuable to you. And I I think this is part of, we've got an opportunity to have generations talk to each other nowadays and learn so much and progress much faster, quicker, Mm -hmm. have better lives and enjoy more if we can get that communication going. Problem is if you question too much, your value of your opinions, thoughts, feelings, questions, or if I do, or if I get too strong about it or you get too strong, then, then that's where the communication begins to shut down.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it ties into just having, um, you say confidence, but again, I think it ties back to knowing your core values, whatever your integrity is when you're living in line with your core values and being able to respect that other people have their own. And so having that discussion, whether it's intergenerational across gender, across whatever um, perceived boundaries there might be. Having that underpinning of respect, um, I guess.
1: So how you how do you define respect at 23? Because I see a lot of definitions of respect out there. I won't give the restaurant group, but I was very mad at a restaurant group years ago when my kids are growing up. And mm-hmm. they basically said respect was giving other people money. They had a little comic book. I so disagree with that. It was just ridiculous. It was horrible.
2: I definitely disagree with
1: that. Oh, it's horrible. And I don't know what they were thinking. I, I think that somebody misfired in a major way. But I remember talking to my kids saying, see this? This is not what respect is. But it's interesting because I think there's a lot of confusion in the world um, right now uh-huh. about respect. Is yeah. r- Respect is uh, saying what's politically correct. And I disagree.
2: Yeah, I disagree. I think respect at its core is recognizing that everyone is a full person. Everyone is having a fully human experience at any given point. And they're entitled to that just as you are. Yeah, and that's really It's like giving them, acknowledging it, naming it, and giving it space to exist. If that's your truth, that's your truth, live it. I like that. Thanks.
1: <laughs> now, something I want to ask you about. you, sure. How many uh, interview processes have you gone in to get jobs? Like how often have you been through a sequence where you're saying, hey, I think I might want to work there. Not sure, but I want to get to know them. They how get to know me. Not, um, how many processes have you been? I mean, it might have been a one step process or a 32 step process or who knows.
2: Yeah, I think I've been through, I'll refer to them as like seasons of job searching and hiring and recruiting and stuff. I would say three. Three.
1: Mm-hmm. So, have you, but how many jobs have you interviewed for? It sounds like you had three seasons where you were mm-hmm. looking for a job, mm-hmm. but like did one you interview 10 and one three and one 14 or
2: just when prob- I did one, when I did two, and when I did probably four.
0: Okay.
1: So the reason I want to ask you about this is is because I'm 55. I don't necessarily do such a good job speaking 23, which which, <laughs> I do. Is, which is dangerous. You do. So you can help teach yeah. me. But I also one of the the struggles a lot of our clients run into is hiring people, hiring really good people. So, sure. The employers I talk to that I do not think will succeed spend a lot of time talking about how hard it is, they're negative about, they're being good people, so on and so forth. And so what ends up happening is they basically talk themselves into failing, in my opinion. I think we've got other employers, uh, most of our clients actually uh, have taken the point of view, hey, we need to learn to speak 23, 25, whatever the, the language is, make sure we're bringing value. But we also need to market, sell, recruit in a way that's attractive, as opposed to kind of being like everybody else. Yeah. Um, I think the companies that struggle the most are spend a lot of time, money, energy, but they still look like everybody else, even if they've got a great career path, opportunity, whatever it is that, that people are looking for. Mm-hmm. So I was curious, kind of from your point of view, going through some of these hiring processes, kind of what you see you've liked, what you haven't liked, kind of what the feeling was as you went through them yeah. and you don't need to name, name company names but just if you said hey there was this process that did this and i like these pieces or i didn't like this or you know whatever
2: yeah i think there's um at least amongst my generation <clears throat> we've grown up with technology and so there's this sense of like immediacy and when i engage with something i want a response as soon as possible i so say is that yeah, I is one hour
1: 24 later. hours one week what's
2: a lot of the time, it's 24 hours, 48 okay. hours. Longer than that, I'm starting to get concerned. Maybe they're not interested. Maybe there's something about the company that is prohibiting, like inhibiting their ability to respond to me quickly. Is that a red flag on my? So end? it sounds like
1: it makes them less attractive. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. So I would say. Um, so responsiveness yeah, via technology. Okay. What yeah. Else? I mean, a lot of hiring at this point is done online, for many people of my generation. Whether it's through a a Zip Recruiter or a LinkedIn or something like that, Um, indeed. People aren't really going to the classifieds so much anymore, as far as I'm aware.
1: So what else besides the responsiveness?
2: I think that a lot of us have been conditioned to think that we should be seeking a career that ties into... Do you
1: believe that or is that BS?
2: I think it depends on your phase of life and what you're bringing to the table, I guess.
1: So give me an example where where you shouldn't be looking. I think I do buy into it. I do buy into it. Yeah, because. You're not sounding 23 to me in a way, at least from what I've heard out there in the muckety-muck world. I'm not saying they're right, but.
2: Oh yeah, okay. So I should not speak for myself. I should speak for other 23-year-olds. Well, no, no,
1: no, no, no. no. I, w- I want to hear what, what you think, what you believe, because I'm interested. it also that... depends. There's a okay. lot of
2: iterations of what a 23-year-old looks like right now. Am I a college graduate? Am I somebody who has my GED? Am I somebody who is pursuing a master's part-time and is also going to be working? It, there's a lot of different versions of what a 23-year-old or a, yo- a young 20s, mid-20s looks like at this point. Um, so
1: as an employer, it sounds like, has to have the ability not just to lay a job out there and say, here, here's a job, but I've got to have the ability to relate, uh, assuming these different types of 23-year-olds have the capabilities uh-huh. or the desire, I've got to be able to have five or six personas of that job that would fit these different 23-year-old personas. Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying maybe, or am I reading too yeah, much into it? Yeah, I
2: would say so. I think it's important to know whatever role it is you're looking to fill, what actually is your ideal candidate? What are you hoping they'll bring? Whether it's cognitive ability, physical ability, whatever the case might be, and be more intentional about who you're seeking out. Because a lot of 23-year-olds, since technology is at our disposal, they'll shoot off a ton of applications to things that seem remotely applicable to what they think they might be maybe wanting to do hoping something sticks. So from the other perspective of trying to fill a position, you have the opportunity to be more selective and intentional about who you're taking.
1: What's making you think as you're rolling your eyes and eyebrows are moving
2: up and down? Well, I've never been on the other side. I haven't had to fill a position. So I don't necessarily know but that's one reason you, I'm Craig asking you,
1: You know, do you serve steak, do you serve strawberry pie? I, what's, what is it you've been served that you've really liked that's attracted you? You said, you know what, this is possible that this could be a good place to work. Or what have they served you that says it's potentially not a good place to work?
2: For me personally, the things that incentivize me to take a job and stay with a company are things that enable me to pursue either a long-term goal or they tie into my core values and whatever I perceive my why to be long term cuz nobody wants to be hopping job to job they want to feel like they're somewhere they're valued and can be for a long time
1: so so when you say that are you saying basically for 23 year olds that's true or for you not to be jumping job to job cuz i've heard out there they all like they're just they're going to have 30 jobs
2: and da, you know all this kind of thing the desire for yes. all 23 year olds is to be valued and stay at a job however our elite Hour. I'll use the grand hour. Allegiance is not strong. Nobody feels a ton of loyalty at this point. I don't think to to employers. They well, you're you're giving me a little
1: out. bit of ray of hope because it's possible if there's that desire. Sure. Even if it's not strong, it's something we can work on growing and developing maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's human nature. If you feel like you're somewhere where you quote unquote belong, everybody's seeking belonging all the time. So if you belong and you feel like you're seen, valued, you'd be inclined to stay. So so
1: is belonging the biggest element at the moment you think of staying at the job? If I had to pick one, that's not accurate because there's multiple reasons I get, but is that the the most powerful?
2: It's hard for me to rank. I think there's a lot of talk about like perks, job perks. And it depends on the industry as well. What kind of benefits do you get at this position? What kind of paid time off do you get? What kind of work-life balance do they offer? What kind of programs are they incentivizing you with? That kind of thing. So, and again, that ties into who the twenty-three-year-old is and what industry and all that stuff. So,
1: you keep bringing up core values. Uh-huh. Is is uh, core values important to you? I get that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's as strong or relatively strong amongst all twenty-three-year-olds? If we're kind of.
2: I mean, it's hard to generalize for all 20 year olds the way, but I think par, it has but part been a Part of where I'm go- going with
1: this is I can say, oh, we have integrity. Come work here and all this other garbage. Mm-hmm. But, but you've got to also feel the integrity, and it's got to be a true fact once you're there. Now, again, integrity isn't 100% anywhere. It's not 0% anywhere. There, mm-hmm. there's a, so so if, if your bar is 80% and we're 75, we've got a problem. Yeah. If your bar is 75 and we're at 80% integrity, then it's not that we're trying not to be 100%, but we're yeah, not perfect yeah. either.
2: I think it sounds kind of cynical, but it's almost like a direct correlation between compensation and core values. Like the less aligned with my core values something is, the more you'd have to pay me.
1: Interesting. So if we do a great job in core values, we can pay you less. You may have stepped into the trap. I like this. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty good.
2: Uh, but yeah, because I think, I mean, maybe this is wishful thinking, but yeah, I think for the most part... There's this feeling of freedom and choice amongst millennials and younger generations of, like, I have my choice of who I can work for, and so I want to do something that feels meaningful and right, which whatever right means for anybody, it's something deep down. It's not necessarily going to be in a contract. It just feels right, whether it's the interaction you're having with the interviewer, whether it's the atmosphere. So it's atmosphere. a
1: feeling more than maybe, I know the tangibles are important to a point, mm-hmm. pay compensation benefit, but there's a, that feeling's a critical piece for you.
2: Yeah. So yeah. long as basic needs are met, I think the deciding factor is a feeling.
1: I mean, at 55, I was taught to be very practical. I was very practical for a period of time, mm-hmm. but I think the last five to 10 years, I've gotten incredibly impractical. how do got, you
2: attribute that to?
1: One is having to learn how to speak 23, 32, whatever the ages are. So I've got more like them. It's one reason I, I'm actually kind of insulted when I hear somebody talk about the millennials. Well, that's a bunch of BS. There's, you know, it's like somebody saying, Yeah, you 55 year olds. Well, I may or may not be like the average of the 55 year olds, uh-huh. which is interesting. Also, you're not really millennial, though, are you? Aren't you no, more I Generation mean. Z or yeah. Cusp or
2: ZX? What ZX,
1: whatever. Do you care? Do I care? Yeah.
2: No, <laughs> not really. I yeah. don't. It's not really a category I find myself having to claim very often.
1: (laughs) Well, to me, if we're talking in generalities, and if I'm taking this back to recruiting, if I'm trying to fill 40 positions, Mm -hmm. and therefore I need to get 800 qualified resumes or applications, I may need to pay attention to, how do I write this ad? How do I make it attractive? How do I have the process work in such a way and be responsive enough? for that grouping. But to me, once I've got those resumes, or once I've got you, Lena, in front of me, Mm -hmm. I've got to set aside those broad generalities and say, hey, they don't matter. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Hey, Lena, what kind of ice cream do you like? Hey, I've got to start figuring out the meal that you specifically like, because it may be different. So I find that the generation stuff is way overused. People like talking about it, it's safe, it's very conceptual. Mm -hmm. But to me, unless you're talking about the broad net that you're throwing out to find who you can try and attract once you're past that is kind of useless and it's not worth a lot of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I just uh, thought I'd throw that out there and see what you thought of that. Yeah. Cause I know like baby boomers, it seems like I talked to a lot of them. Oh yeah, I'm a baby boomer. There seems to be more, you know, I'm a baby boomer and the heck with those millennials. I, you, you idiot. Do you not understand what the world's doing? They're going to cut yeah. you out. Yeah. You, you will be not relevant to the rest of the world. And that's scary to me. So I've become very impractical for very practical reasons. Part of it is I've realized a lot of my life is I think I've lived it for other people's reasons. And that Mm. has been a huge mistake. I've got the capacity to do so much, but I've realized I've got to get older, more selfish perhaps, more demanding of freedom and choice. Because if I don't have it, why have I worked so hard? I see people in their 60s, 70s, 80s just working their tail off based on the old rules. Whereas I feel like I'm actually having more fun, get, get more freedom and choice, get more younger people. Hey, they'll talk to me. I can't believe they'll talk to me. What's wrong with them? But it, but it makes it more fun because they're helping me explore and see other boundaries that that, that used to be boundaries that just aren't there anymore. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of fun to do it. So let me bring this up. So let me go back to your, your softball situation. Okay. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me is... Uh, when you said that your coach asked the why question, for the most part, it was who's. Maybe there's some non-human who's. We hypothesize dogs or God or whatever. But what, one question I had, did anybody say themselves, I'm doing this for me, that you
2: remember? I don't think anybody did.
1: Okay. I think,
2: yeah, I don't know if that was uh, by design and that it felt like that wasn't a possible so, option. That so wasn't it'd
1: be an politically incorrect <laughs> to politically say it.
2: Incorrect. Um, potentially, but I think that it's also indicative of the fact that for many, I'll just say for myself at that time. I won't project on anybody else. It didn't feel like you were playing for yourself at that point. I had felt pretty beaten down, and a lot of yeah, myself esteem and self-worth had been tied into performance and it was a losing season it was a rough go and I think as I mentioned it's like you've worked your whole life to get to this point for it all to amount to nothing if anything you feel worse than you started off and yeah so looking externally was probably the only option it felt like there was at that point
1: okay you you mentioned the self-esteem thing earlier and Mm -hmm. and I just ran across a couple days ago the best definition of self-esteem I've ever heard yeah I saw that yeah, do you remember what it was?
2: Yeah, it was. um What was it? Seeing yourself as somebody who is inherently flawed, but holding yourself in high regard.
1: Yeah, beautiful. That's exactly. And actually, that is exactly what self-esteem is. So we don't yeah. need participation trophies or patting people on the back when they've screwed up. Mm-hmm. We can say you screwed up. Let's figure it out. And, and I think you know yeah. it, it's fascinating. So I'm bringing that up for this reason. Is I remember in 2008 there was a company we worked with and these brothers own the business. And I remember, you know, sitting in a, a, a restaurant and, you know, the three of us were crying, literally, because we thought they were bankrupt. There's no way they're going to make it. it. Just there was too much debt. There was, the revenue wasn't coming in. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting there and I thought, man, this ain't good. Even I'm crying, which is a rare event. And, and I asked him a question. I, I said, you know, let me just be really, really selfish for a minute. L- let's assume you go bankrupt. It's all over. Nothing we can do. What is the one thing that this situation could still be incredibly valuable to you for, that when you went to your grave, you would say, you know what? This was for me. What would be it? It, More crying happened, that at all, this kind of thing. But what was so fascinating is they ended up saying, we've worked hard, we've been very successful, we've followed a lot of the rules, things that should be done. If we can't make it, if we can at least still be good brothers to each other, good husbands to our wives— great parents to our kids, and they see us go through a tough time with a lot of integrity and honor. We'll keep the relationships, the love that we desire. So maybe we have failed at life from the financial success standpoint, but we've been able to cause something to happen that makes our life fun and enjoyable and worth living. One reason I bring this up, I was with a guy who's 85 years old. I had lunch with him uh, out in Wilson, North Carolina earlier this week, and Uh, I was talking to him, and he's having a lot of trouble walking. He's getting really old. But he was talking about somebody that had made billions of dollars up in New York that he knew, a friend of his. And he made the comment that he felt like he was more successful. I said, cool. I probably believe that, too. So why do you think it is? And he talked about all the relationships he had. His great-grandkids wanted to come spend time with him. It wasn't like, ooh, smelly granddad. And, you know, he talks about the old stories. The grandkids really wanted to come spend time and interact. And so I think a lot of success is there's gets to be a lot of focus on the financial piece and a business has to survive and make money and and money's important. It's important for families, individuals. But I also think, you know, part of the definition of success has got to be something it's, it needs to bring value to other people. But I think there's at an inner core got to be an understanding of what will cause us to move heaven and earth and do the tough things that matter to us in a way it's very selfish. But as i've gotten older i've realized you need that selfish piece or you burn out after a while you've given so much for the team so to speak for the family for the business you got nothing left you're just trying to make it happen for all these people but then you get nothing coming back
0: mm-hmm. and
1: i find that one of the going back kind of the why thing but i think you know you might say this is a little off topic but when i look at recruiting people you're trying to hire people that have that sense of balance that knows when they're not getting out of whack Or when they are getting out of whack inside, but also have that selflessness to want to offer and do for others. And it's that balance that gets to be very, very tricky, I think, in many ways. So as I'm listening to you, you know, you've said these, you know. 23-year-olds want responsiveness. You might have to market as employer to a variety of different types of them. Core value is important. It is related somewhat to compensation, negatively correlated. They'd like to the stay at one job possibly, uh, but they also want choice and they want freedom. So, you know, I think about those things as an employer. I can provide that, but I've also got to have a hiring process that somehow discusses with you What do you believe? What are your core values? What's important to you? What are some of the things you think you might need as you get older? You get married, have kids, da-da-da-da. You know, there might be a whole different set of things you talk about to make sure, hey, we're aware of these needs, whether or not it's those needs or something else, and we'll be responsive to those needs and help adjust with you. But we've got to have a conversation on a regular basis, you know, once a month, once a quarter, something like that. So I guess as I think about that, this is developing into a much deeper relationship, if done right, of employer-employee. Mm-hmm. In some ways more fulfilling, some ways more scary for both sides probably, um, but also more rewarding in many ways. This could be one of the strategic advantages, somebody going to work for the right company and for the company. It could be a huge strategic advantage with that type of dynamic.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, having conversations like that, whether it's in the hiring process or at the beginning of anybody's employment, also changes your culture and does make it feel like a safer space or like you're seen for a fuller fuller person than just uh, your utility as an employee. And so that, that can enhance productivity or whatever else you may be interested in as well.
1: One of the challenges I find a lot of employers have is that they're, if I take a company, let's say it's a general contractor that builds buildings, They grade a piece of land, put up a five-story building. You know, one of the challenges is, is we've got these people we want to hire, but they're lower paid laborers, Mm -hmm. you know, not college educated, hammer nails, doing some basic things. What thoughts do you have just, you know, getting people like that hired that don't necessarily have the education, but that maybe have some spark or fire to them or have some dreams? What's your sense of that at the moment? Because that's a different dynamic a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure it is actually a different dynamic. I think it's the way you reach out might be different, but I think the needs, the desires, the belonging, the freedom, the choice, I suspect is probably there, I would think, at some level.
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely still there. I think, again, it ties back to, well, are you targeting the right people for the job? And, yeah, when it's something that's that tactile, where it's you're going and you're hammering nails and you're building something physically, there's something about not making it philosophically stimulating but creating something that's I don't know I guess for me I don't thoroughly enjoy building things with my hands in the same way that some people really might so uh, that's kind of foreign to me but if people are there people like that who like building things just yeah I mean I think it's often a more it's attributed to males more than females, but Well, I was with a group not, of I'm people the, the other expert. day
1: that we were basically talking about the meeting wasn't working for them because I was being too conceptual, and they were builders. They like building things. Oh, right. So I said, okay, let's play the game and figure out how to build,
0: mm-hmm. how to
1: physically make this physical.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that was the on-ramp into getting that engagement and having things start to make sense for them. So I think that's true. And actually, most of these, not all of them in this particular team, most of them had not been college educated. Mm-hmm. But had a very successful company, done very, very well, but they liked being in the real world, if you will. Yeah. You know, not that there's not value in education, but they like actually building, making things. But part of what the problem they were having was transitioning to becoming leaders that could attract other people to the organization, because as leaders, they had to become teachers, coaches, mm-hmm. instead of being doers. Yeah. And some of them were afraid to lose the doing component to it. mm so, to me, if they could get it worded right or explained right in their hiring process, they could get a, somebody young that's not going to go to college, doesn't want to go, and move up. We have another client that actually I, – I think the 28-year-old that's never been to school, won't go to school, won't, won't get near a classroom, won't read a book, he'll own the business. I think he's going to own it because he just likes building stuff. And that, at some point, that will be part of his evolution. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing.
2: Yeah. I think – the differentiating factor then in hiring has to be the atmosphere and the culture of the company, because building things is building things regardless of where you're building them, essentially, if, if it, it really is the task in front of you is what's bringing you fulfillment from the work standpoint. So it's the relationships that are cultivated between coworkers. It's the friendships. It's the dynamics on the work site. It's that kind of thing that's going to differentiate you um, as an employer from other places where people really do just feel like they're a set of hands. And when they clock out, out of sight, out of mind, as opposed to I'm working with my buddies. I'm having a good time. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm building. I feel good about what I'm building. But also, I'm enjoying the conversations day to day too, because you can only be building things for however many hours of the day.
1: One thing you haven't brought up, which is interesting to me that again, I hear a lot about Mm-hmm. Young people want to influence or be able to make decisions or influence the decision. what's your belief on that about yourself and about other younger people?
2: I think there are, it's twofold. I think there are some young people, and I'll include myself in the category of, I'm much more interested in influencing one-on-one and having, or smaller groups, having one-on-one or small group conversations um, that feel more targeted and appropriate and impactful and on the other side of that twofold is yeah there's a significant portion of young people who really love social media and would claim their title as influencer and that's a that's a phenomenon that exists and it's casting a broad net that's not very directed at any one person in particular or what they actually need but what you think might be potentially applicable to any of a million
1: so, so let me make sure I'm understanding influencer because I, inf, aren't they the ones with millions of followers or a whole bunch? Yeah. And they sell product X and so yep. you're supposed to buy product X? Yeah. Okay. The only reason I'd pull them out of the discussion, I think, is because I don't know that they're employers or being employed. My sense is they're more.
2: The idea is they're self employed.
1: Yeah, but they're also basically marketing sales. They don't have a production group. They don't have. So when I look at a traditional business that might have seven or eight parts to it, Mm -hmm. they might be dealing with the front end marketing sales, but then there's no other parts of that business. So I mean, it is a business, but it's not like a full blown, Mm -hmm. messy, nasty beast Mm -hmm. in the same way. It may take a lot of work and energy.
2: Yeah. So I guess the value in bringing up The influencer phenomenon is Uh more that it's indicative of a trend. And now that I reflect on it, it's partly because a lot of us were brought up during the Apple age and this notion of like, we're going to change the world. Okay. You could do this one thing and it'll change the world or whatever. Do do you
1: you believe that?
2: Do I believe that I could change the world? Yes. Wow. Um,
1: Okay, you're thinking it. Stop thinking it. What's your gut initial reaction? Do you feel like you really could change the world?
2: Alone? No.
1: That wasn't the question the question is can you change the world (laughs) seriously i I know the how maybe isn't there i mean otherwise you might have already done it right right yeah you would have walked in and bought our business and said you know yeah okay so what's your evidence now now let's go to the thinking page (laughs) (laughs)
2: um do
1: do you know why do you know why i went to to how you felt your gut why because that's how i know if somebody's willing to play the game if somebody's even willing to try if there's a reason for them to try because if you don't have that piece, the rest of it kind of doesn't matter.
2: So if I ask, by telling me to go to my gut, if I say no, that's me not playing the game? Or what do you mean by that?
1: Um, basically, if you say no, even if you could, uh, do I really want to spend time talking to you about how we're going to change the world? Because do if you think there's... you could change the world? Yeah, absolutely. No doubt.
2: <laughs> no hesitation.
1: <laughs> but I think the whole point of it is is trying to find similar souls, similar core values mm-hmm. that are either stupid enough, crash enough. I mean, pick something. When I say stupid, a lot of people misunderstand it. They think I literally mean somebody's stupid. But um, most clients we've got have changed the world dramatically.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Not as much as like a Steve Jobs or something, but a lot of them made huge, huge differences. But a lot of it has been with people telling them they can't do it. And them recognizing I may not be able to, I'm not sure how to do it, but I'm going to go at it anyway. And they do it with joy and fun. And it's not easy. And there's a lot of pain and all Mm -hmm. this but i've realized as i've gotten older you really can do a lot of it might not happen exactly the way or the time frame doesn't mean there's not pain and a price to it but mm-hmm. it's an incredible thing to f- to go at and if you only change 50% of the world even though you want to change the 100% still a heck of a lot of fun
2: yeah i think the more you're talking the more i realize my hesitation and i don't know if it's generational but i kind of think it could be cuz you immediately said yes mm-hmm. i can change the world and i think that in part, the world as I grew up became so interconnected that the entire world all of a sudden became accessible. Mm-hmm. And so, when you say, Do you think you could change the world? My perception of that question is, Could I do something that touches the lives of everybody in the world, or at least the vast so majority? So, you'd be more
1: literal about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because now, by the it's way, I done. think you could if you wanted to. Yes. Because
2: it's been done. <laughs> Thank you. Because it's been no, done. No, you could. And so, but then I backtrack a little bit and i say okay changing a few things in the world is still changing the world mm-hmm. changing your personal space is changing the world so there are different iterations of it but i think that's partly why there was that long pause for me of like could i really change the entire world
1: It take a long time but you, i believe you can do it there's a guy i know by the name of mike haynes at loving companies mm-hmm. and he's a real young guy He's got a young team of people. They're impressive people. They will be able to change the world if they want to change it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely a fascinating dynamic. And if you took a bunch of old codgers in there and consultants, uh, they'd probably argue with them about a bunch of stuff. But it's the ones breaking the rules, trying different things, taking risks enjoying it, getting a group of people around to like it that are making the big difference. So when I look at the recruiting process Mm -hmm. is, you know, if I have to hire people that hammer nails, all these things, I don't care if it's that group or college educated or something in between. But the reality is we're looking for all people that want to learn, develop, grow, become better. Mm -hmm. And you changing the world, it always has to be done through other people. Mm -hmm. And so by definition, you end up having, okay, we got to develop... Who else do I know that wants to make a difference? The young woman you brought the other evening to dinner was very interesting because, mm-hmm. again, whether or not she can do it, she, she wants to make a lot of stuff happen, and that's cool. That's very good.
2: <laughs> Just go get her for sure.
1: But, but that's what we're, we're trying to look for is people that say, hey, we can band together as teams of people, work together, do great good for the marketplace, the customers, do great good for our vendors, suppliers. I, in fact, I believe we ought to treat our suppliers the same way we treat customers. Mm-hmm. To me, there's no difference. I need both. Am I going to treat them bad and them good because them we think we don't need? No, we need them.
2: People are people. You asked me about my definition of respect. Yeah. Respect everybody regardless of Let's what treat you think they might bring to your life or not.
1: So what are your core values? If you had to list them right now. Have you ever done that? You got them written down somewhere? Or?
2: Probably somewhere. Probably somewhere. in many journals, yeah. At the core core. I mean, people are ultimately the most important, which is why I think I have that definition of respect. Okay. Everyone is entitled to their experience. Everyone is entitled to their truth, and I want to support all of them, nice. regardless, very interesting. In whatever their best self is. Yeah, kindness. I try to just always be kind. Obviously, it's it's cool. difficult sometimes, but it can be kindness. What are my core values? Kindness, grace, patience. All the all the normal. Well, I say normal. Everybody's. I mean, my so.
1: sense is you feel them and you yeah. know them. Putting words sometimes these things are a little bit harder. hmm And sometimes we can wordsmith them too much and.
2: Yeah, I think what it boils down to is that I I'm a people person. I'm a social person, and I care deeply about people, and I want to help people in any way that I can.
1: And you think that's true of most 23 year olds or younger? No. Okay. <laughs> so five percent, you, ten percent, twenty. What's What's that unique, strange blend of values? I
2: don't know. I think there's a lot of um, interplay with different, different dynamics. But I would, say, I would say there's a significant portion. I would say there's at least like 10 or 20%. I don't know that we're the majority. I think it's, I mean, in terms of cognitive development, 23-year-olds shouldn't be thinking that externally and that altruistically. For the most part, until you're 25, for some men, even into their 40s, they're not looking externally at all. So, like, um, but there are definitely some. So, yeah, I would say 10%, 20%. So,
1: you've given me a lot of words and useful ideas for trying to hire younger people. Now, you've, you've been through the hiring process. You go to work for a company. Yeah. And then you find out, is it true or not? Is it a bunch of BS or not? Mm. So, what, what's mm-hmm. been kind of your experience? Again, you don't need to necessarily name companies, particularly not ours,
2: but... <laughs> I mean, I think that nobody's a hundred percent lying. however you put on your best face and you're trying to essentially sell sell yourself, sell your company, sell sell the role. So uh, is there improvement of the truth for sure? Um, where it becomes problematic is when it is in the specifics of the job, whether it's compensation, or atmosphere if you say that everybody's best friends and then you show up on the next day and nobody's talking to each other. In fact, they're being cruel to one another. That's problematic. That's problematic, yeah. So I think, and I don't know if I'm the majority or not in this, as long as there are no overt lies or misrepresentations, Usually, I can get past them, or at least have a conversation about well, why is this not necessarily what I expected? Was this m- wrong on my end? Was I mis? Was it a misconception on my end, or was I actually misguided and misinformed?
1: I, on the employer side, and, mm-hmm. and all of our clients, I find there's there's very much intent not to deceive, very much so, very strong, but yet there's a lot of self-deception. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. for example when we do an employee survey for a client, is we find a lot of times the leadership rates themselves higher than the people in the other parts of the company. And it's not that they-
2: Rates themselves on- Yeah,
1: so like if you go to the hundred people that are on the floor of a steel plant and you say, rate your leaders one to 10, they might rate them a six and a half or seven. Well, the leaders might rate themselves as leaders an eight or eight and a half. It's not that they're lying or trying to get a raise or something. It's a lot of times what's happening is they only see part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And they either haven't set up a safe place to get dialogue from the other employees to realize where they're messing up, or the employees may not be sharing it with them, that there's some form of deception, self-deception, culture deception going on. Mm. And that's one of the big problems. So that's why a lot of times when we're working in organizations with hiring and keeping really good people Mm -hmm. is setting up a feedback process, setting up a regular dialogue between all parts of the company yeah and and i like getting companies to a point we don't have to do these stupid culture surveys
0: uh-huh.
1: I'd, I'd like somebody to be able to on the plant floor to walk up to the president and say hey i you know like what you all are doing over here blah 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 but i sure don't like what happened over here i just want to let you know and president says well gosh thanks for letting me know makes a note on it yeah collects this information talks to the staff their next meeting says hey i've had five people say this mm-hmm. by the way three are saying the same thing Let's go figure out what's going on here, good, and keep doing it. Let's figure out what's not so good and get that stuff fixed.
2: Yeah, tying in um, the interviewing part, I did. I went on an interview with an employer, and I think a valuable approach was that it was it was a long interview, but I interacted with four different people over the course of the interview, and Interesting. they were all one-on-one conversations. The first of which would have been the person I would have directly been reporting to in that role. The second of which was another administrative role, the third of which was somebody who was in the role that I was interviewing for. Oh, nice. So somebody who had direct experience.
1: Maybe more clear perception of the truth of the job, not that the others were trying to deceive.
2: Right, right. So having different perspectives that all interact with that role, interviewing prospective employees, and from what I understood, they were all allowed to say whatever they wanted to say. Nobody was going to be persecuted for saying something honest or enlightening about something that may not be as beautiful as it looks on the outside. So I think that's a valuable approach if it's if it's feasible for an employer to do that, to bring somebody in who's in the role that you're interviewing for at the time. Ideally somebody who's been successful in that role, because <laughs> somebody who's not thriving in a role is not necessarily gonna rep it well.
1: It's interesting you bring that up. When you were talking earlier, I made a note about anytime you interview people where possible, have them meet several different people mm-hmm. and encourage them not just to say, don't just tell them about the job, tell them what you really love about the job and tell them what you hate. Yeah. Now again, without setting up problems in relationships, mm-hmm. tell them what you don't like. Yeah. And I think that's very valuable because it, it, it starts someone off on the path of we wanna be open, we wanna be direct, we wanna get the whole truth out there, and we recognize you're not just gonna interview with me because I don't know the whole truth, mm-hmm. I only know part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that launches people, which kind of leads into the onboarding program. Mm-hmm. To me, that hiring process is really critical because if done right, it launches the onboarding and then reinforces, so somebody says, hey, this isn't just 60% true what I learned, it's 95%. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, how long have you been with us for now? What's the oh, time gosh. frame?
2: A month. Four weeks, three weeks.
1: So have you been asked to do a fresh eyes interview yet or fresh eyes feedback? No. Okay. So we've missed the boat on that.
2: (laughs) I don't think so.
1: (laughs) So one of the other things we recommend is that once somebody's been on board 30 days with any company is to do a fresh eyes. Okay. And so it's 10 things you absolutely love, Uh like about working here that we need to be aware of that we can use in our hiring process to say, hey, by the way, people that we've hired say they like this, this, this very well. And that way we're using your words, not some made up crap we've come up with, or we're saying, Hey, the chocolate cake is good here. By the way, is our chocolate cake good?
2: Delicious. You, so good.
1: You just lied <laughs> that we don't have chocolate cake, at least that I've seen. Maybe you guys eat it when I'm not there, <laughs> no. but, but trying to true that up. But I think the other thing is, so 10 things you really love, but 10 things that you don't like, seem misrepresented, don't look like they're working right, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but just 10 things you think that could be fixed, done different. Now, by the way, all 10 won't get fixed. All I care about are two or three the most important, and let's get cracking Mm -hmm. on those things. Mm -hmm. So I find if I move from onboarding, which if onboarding can launch very quickly, somebody, then we're getting the full them. I don't want to get somebody on board that's Oh, I, I, I'm still new here. It's, it's only been six months. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to some clients, to people that have been on board two years. I say, hey, you know, what do you think about working here? And da-da-da, what do you think they need to do different? I don't know, I've only been here a couple of years. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Wow. This is just screwed up. Well, what it tells me, they may have a problem themselves, but it also tells me that in the interview process and onboarding, something's been done wrong. And, and by the way, in the case of a two-year deal, the performance evals or whatever's done on that haven't been very well done because it hasn't gotten a true dialogue and hasn't gotten that door open to know we need feedback on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's one reason I asked about being able to influence things because mm. I think that ought to happen very early, yeah. very quickly. Uh, in fact, I think it's great when you're getting, about to bring someone on and say, hey, what did you like best about our hiring process? What did you like least? I think the first interview with somebody ought to be, before getting into the interview, what did you like about the ad? What turned you on excited you? Is there anything that you didn't like about the ad? Mm-hmm. Any recommendations on the ad? I, I'm marketing to you. Give me the market research. I'm going right. I don't have some stupid firm over here saying, well, here's how you ought to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you care about career path?
0: Yes. Uh, In what way?
1: Because like when I think of career path, like in the old days, I'd work for three years this, get promoted to this, five, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. To me, career path, I think, means a different thing today than it used to. So maybe I'm asking this for the older members of our listening audience. Mm -hmm. But what what does a career path look like? Hmm. Do we we have a career path for you yet? Uh. (laughs) By the way, if you say yes, I'll say, what is the career path? And so I'll back you into a corner.
2: Uh. Okay, no.
1: So, so what would a career path look like? So, coaches teach us, what would it look like?
2: What would a career path look yeah, like? Yeah, like if we're going to sketch one out on a general.
1: piece of paper right now. Okay, what what my would a career path? Thinking? Yeah, that would, if we would have shown that to that's you day one,
2: mm-hmm.
1: first interview with you, day one, we say, here's our career path. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, I was just dreaming about that last night. So, what would it look like to you?
2: It would look like um being in this role for a year maybe two integrating myself more fully into the program seeing more of myself in it and understanding all of it because there's a lot there's backstory there's current story there's perspective story prospective story and then I think whether it's perceived or not to have a career path It's my impression, whether it's self-imposed or not, that I would need a post-secondary degree, so going back to school in some capacity, whether it's part-time and working the other part-time or full-time and getting my master's in, at this point I would be thinking it's clinical psychology or counseling or something along those lines, Um, but maybe it ends up being business or something else. Not sure. And then (laughs) re-engaging. To be very blunt, you're not going to be here forever. So what happens next? At this point, it's us three. So us two at that point.
1: You're, you're one heart attack away from losing your job. I have a heart attack. Or I'm gone. I'm done. one
2: heart attack away from getting your job. Well,
1: if you're smart, that could be the deal. Much better. I like that. I like that.
2: Uh, I feel like I'm one heart That's attacked. a
1: good approach. a lot of things right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's an interesting challenge when you get, kind of get down to it from a lot of perspectives. But that's where I think the career path, employers understanding what is it mm-hmm. and, and bringing up part of tax, probably part of it's making sure that you know the company's stable, there's less risk, it's being less risky over time is probably also part of it, I would think. Mm-hmm. You know, If we said we're going to grow a double in size every year for the next 20 years, I don't know if that would be more scary to you or more exciting or how, how would you look at it, a 23-year-old look at that? High growth, exciting, fun?
2: Exciting, okay. fun, yeah. Yeah, I was a sociology major and I was talking to somebody recently about this notion of, I can't remember who, who it is, but there's this theory of the great upward force in life. And if you're not growing and becoming creative and exploring and playing and trying new things, you're dying. And so you either keep going up and up and up or you hit the, pin- the pinnacle and you drop off and that's the end. So for me, growth, always sounds fun and exciting and challenging and is it it doesn't
1: sound like it's so much job title but being able to have different experiences grow learn formal education is an important part of it
2: i don't know that it needs to be formal i enjoy learning um, okay so and formal or informal and okay. mastered in certain things um, but you
1: need to feel yourself moving upward
2: not necessarily upward but i think i'm an anomaly in that sense i think a lot of 23-year-olds would be like, yep, I want to get a job and get promoted and get promoted and get promoted and get promoted until I'm either owning my own business or doing something. Do you
1: think what they want to own their own business?
2: I think a lot of people do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think they understand the reality of that, though. Yeah. I think it's a very romanticized notion.
1: It gets very romanticized. Mm-hmm. I remember at NC State, somebody who's about to graduate asked me, and I said, if we can Tie you down in the parking lot, naked in the hot sun, let fire ants and honey all over you. I, that's You can handle that for a year. You, you're an entrepreneur because I just I think a lot of people think you go do this and this and things erupt and do well and all this. And it's failure after failure after failure is typically what it is. Mm-hmm. It's funny because a lot of times second generation business owners, mm-hmm. some of which are clients, come into a business and everybody thinks, oh, they walked into the job. It is a nightmare. It's cha- it's got a different set of challenges than building it.
0: Mm.
1: Building it is raw, just gut, persistent, primal ability to just live through it. The second generation, in a lot of ways, people question it. There's a lot of fear because, you know, how do they rebuild it if if it fails? The guy that built it or the gal that built it doesn't care because they'll just rebuild the thing. They know how to do it. Uh, they did it once. They figure they can do it again, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. So to me, I find it a fascinating thing to kind of get that clear. So um, in the construction trades, there's actually a – I don't remember if it was AGC or PHCC, but they actually have a career path. If you go to college or don't go to college, just out of high school, get into building trades, it shows a career path for both, how they can come together and both people can end up owning a business. It is really cool because it doesn't say you've got to have this pedigree. It says, hey, you can go this path, this path, but yet you too can actually end up owning your own business. And so it gives about eight different steps to go through, which is kind of a nice model. Mm -hmm. If we gave you a model like that, would that be nice for you or you don't really care? You just, you're happy with the conceptual, hey, we talked about it, you got your career path, cool, move on. Or do you want something in writing that's got a little chart, something to it?
2: Um, I think it's always nice to see it in writing or to see some kind of plan for people who planning Mm -hmm. is something that makes them feel secure. And you're one of those people? To a certain extent.
1: Most 23-year-olds, planners, like having a plan? Being given a plan? Mm, I don't know. I get nervous with a plan because it locks me in sometimes, depending on who's on the other side giving it to me. Or if it's a collaborative plan, that's different. Yeah. Or a collaborative plan that says, hey, this is set, we know this, but then here's the variable stuff that we'll figure out.
2: I think you should make them take a Myers-Briggs before <laughs> you give them a plan. Okay. Yeah, and then you kind of know cuz for some people it it's trapping and it would be a turn off for some people it would be extremely enticing so if and i don't for some do a Myers... somewhere in between.
1: somewhere let's talk about honesty for a moment directness um okay. let's say i'm interviewing 30 23 year olds today i'm going to okay. spend 20 minutes with each if i ask them the question hey would a plan be helpful to you kind of a career path for you or would that not be helpful and actually turn you off do you think i get a good is there enough self awareness and willingness to be honest and direct that we'd get an accurate question. Can I have the interviewer in a job process guide me? Or in our current culture, not you, but in our current culture, is there too much uh, stuff going on there?
2: No, I think it would be a fair question to ask, and I think you would get pretty candid answers. Okay. I think more often people would say yes Mm -hmm. and maybe realize later that that wasn't something they wanted, but at the time they thought they wanted it.
1: But as long as you keep the dialogue going, hopefully they'll say, hey, yeah. you know, it's, I've changed my mind.
2: This yeah. doesn't matter. I think you'd rather provide them with too much information than not enough.
1: Well, one reason I'm asking that is I, I find I sometimes in these meetings with clients getting these long, drawn out conversations, trying to guess what the audience needs. And my reaction is, let's try trying to figure it out. Let's go get some of the audience and ask them. Then we get the answer. It's a real answer and move on. And if we don't do that, we're just guessing and wasting a lot of time. And it's fascinating how employers are almost afraid to do it. They don't want to do it or they won't do it. And that really seems to be the simplest way to get to the truth of the matter. Yeah. So this was Don Hadley with Lena Mayer doing Building a Leadership Culture Podcast. Part two was about how to recruit great A players of people that are in their 20s and 30s. I want to remind you that we've got a couple books that are pretty wonderful. We've done a number of podcasts. We tweet on Twitter. We're also on LinkedIn. So if you have any thoughts on what you would like to see or hear from us in terms of topics or you would like to be a guest or have somebody you'd recommend as a guest, we'd love to hear from you. Or more importantly, if we can help you improve, develop, strengthen your business in a way that tremendously impacts your culture and makes your business more powerful and effective for the long term, we would love to do that. My email is dhadley at appliedvisionworks.com. My cell phone is 919-368-9008. Thank you. You've been listening to the Building a Leadership Culture podcast, hosted by Don Hadley, owner and president of Applied Vision Works. Any questions, concerns, please email Craig Chase at cchase at AppliedVisionWorks.com or call 800-786-4332. This has been an exclusive
0: presentation of 680 WPTF and Applied Vision Works.